Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is January 27th, 2014. This is episode 1288 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Monday. So on Mondays, we do listener feedback shows. This is where I respond to your emails about articles, about questions, about issues, about all kinds of things. Um, that you send to me at jack at the survival com Again, jack at the survival com And uh, you need to put something in the subject line to the effect of article for Jack, question for Jack, comment for Jack, story for Jack. Something like that. One word followed by the words for Jack, and it'll go into my special folder to be uh, screened for, you know, this type of a show. Now, I get hundreds of emails, can't get them all in the show, but I do my best to get a varied assortment on each week. Today will be no exception. Got some interesting stuff for you today and some thoughts on where the economy is going to go in 2014 because everybody's start, about to start screaming that it's going off the edge of the cliff very, very soon. I don't think so. I'll tell you why later. Before I get into that, let's go ahead and uh, take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today is Backyard Food Production. The awesome Marjorie Wallacraft uh, will show you in her DVD series called Growing Your Groceries, How to Turn Your Backyard into a Food Production Machine. It won't matter if you're on a tenth of an acre in the suburbs or ten acres in the country or a hundred acres in the country. You'll be able to scale her solutions up or down to meet your needs and be able to become very uh, self-sufficient when it comes to your food production. Uh, the bonus DVD that comes with uh, her set, or actually it's really more of a CD of all the documents, it's probably worth the cost of the whole thing alone. It's an awesome awesome product. If you haven't gotten it yet, you should. You can find it at BackyardFoodProduction.com. Best way to get to uh, the, that product, though, is go to the survivalpodcast.com first and uh, click on their link in the show notes or their banner in the right-hand margin. That's always best with all of our sponsors to make sure you're dealing with our actual sponsor. But in the case of Marjorie Wildcraft, she actually does a discount, a bigger discount for members of the Support Brigade, but a discount for everyone on TSP if you use our links. So it's really, really important with her because you should get the best price that you can on a great product. Next up today, Survival Gear Bags, a company born straight out of the Survival Podcast community. Kelly John Doe and his family run that company back when uh, the Survival Podcast was but an infant. In our very first year in 2008, if you can believe it, when we were doing like episode like 35 or something, uh, a group of listeners came to me and said, you shall give us a forum, Jack. And I went, I don't want to run a forum. And they're like, we'll run it. You will give us a forum and you shall do so now. I said, okay. So I installed the forum. I set it up. Let the moderators run it, and one of the people that showed up early in the de in the in the you know the genesis of the forum was this guy Kelly, called himself Cart Pusher, was in the fulfillment industry, started doing some group buys for people on the forum. Next thing you know, a whole company gets built out of that. Survival gear bags, great gear and great bags to put your gear in, great pricing, great service. American run company, American family run company, even the kids are involved in it. Check them out at survivalgearbags.com. And, yes, they do a discount for the members' support brigade as well. So make sure you check that out. Uh, next up today, featured discounter of the day, High Mowing Organic Seeds. 
their MSB vendor discount is uh, free shipping on all orders. So free shipping from High Mowing. They are in your member support brigade if you are a member. If not, consider joining. This is how it works, folks. You sign up as a member. It costs 50 bucks a year or five bucks a month, and there's some other frequencies you can pay at. And you become a member and you get a private area you can log into. There's over 40 different discounters that provide discounts, like backyard food production, like survival gear bags, like high mowing organic seeds. There's some discounts that pay for the whole membership for a full year by themselves. And then you have access to these discounts for as long as you remain a member. And I keep getting new discounts for you. And then you click on downloads and you find some video content you can't get anywhere else. And then you look and you'll see that you can also get over $150 worth of ebooks completely for free. And you know that you're supporting this show at 18.3 cents an episode. So when you get done with this show, if you think, man, that show's worth two dimes a day, consider joining. And if you are military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, or prior service, or a first responder, like an EMT, a paramedic, or a firefighter, all of you guys... Again, active or prior service. Qualify for a discount if you email me before you join. Service discount in the subject line, one or two sentences, tell me about your service. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and uh, do our history segment today. There's a lot of interesting things here today. The one I'm going to talk about out of Alex's uh, uh, great research, as always, is Marco Polo Discovers Paper Money. China has been using money with varying paper money with varying levels of success for some years now, but Marco Polo has just discovered it. In many ways, it sounds like the days when the U.S. dollar was redeemable for silver. You could exchange old paper money for new. Official paper money is required to be accepted for commerce upon pain of death. Counterfeiting is a capital crime, and paper money has a tendency to be inflationary, which Marco Polo fails to notice. But one thing everyone has noticed. His very popular book has described exactly how to produce a fiat currency in Europe. Um, Alex's take on this one. About 1288, Marco Polo traveled to China, discovered the existence of paper money. In Book 2, uh, Section 18, he gives an account of its manufacture. He says it was made in Kambalu. The inner rind of a mulberry tree was steeped and pounded in a mortar and then made into paper resembling that made from cotton. It, it, but quite black. It was then cut into pieces nearly square, uh, but of different sizes. The smallest were the value of denier taurus, the next for a Venetian goat, uh, others for two, five, and ten goats, others for one, ten gold besants. Several officers had to subscribe their names and place their seals on each note, which was then stamped with a royal seal dipped in vermilion. Counterfeiting was a capital offense, If it had then a forced currency, no one dared to refuse it on pain of death. Caravans of merchants arrived with their goods, which they laid before the king, who selected what he pleased and placed in, them, placed in this money. When anyone wished to exchange old money for new, it was done at the mint for a charge of 3%. Anyone wanted gold or silver for manufacture, he could obtain bullion at the mint in exchange for the paper. Marco Polo mentions many cities where he observed this money in circulation. Now, My take on this is, as always, when government wants to assign value to something and the market won't do it on its own, the only choice the government has is the use of force. And the government will use force to force value into something that has no value. At least in this case, though, the money was redeemable for silver. What the balance the government is doing whenever it does a, a, a metal-backed currency 
is can you circulate more currency than metal and never have all your bets called at the same time? And when it starts to happen, especially modern commerce is so much different than 1288, the psychology of the human condition actually very similar. But the, the ability to call in the bets, so to speak, much higher, as we found out through Charles de Gaulle, Uh, in, in the late 60s, early 70s, when Nixon closed the gold window, because that's what happened. We had more dollars in circulation than gold on hand, and we had artif the, the worst part was we had artificially suppressed the value of gold relative to the dollar. So the French basically declared financial war on the United States. And a lot of people blame the French for that, but it's the United States that made themselves vulnerable. And then the gold window closed. And the real, the real gold window wasn't in 71. It was in 75. 1975 was when we really saw the truth about gold. Do you know why? If so, tell me in the comments section of today's show, uh, episode 1288. I might pick somebody and give them a free... Yes, free member support brigade uh, subscription for one year uh, out of the uh, comment section if you happen to get that one right. Uh, with that, we've got the uh, housekeeping wrapped up, and it's time to uh, get into today's show. I want to start out with something that's probably going to torque off some teachers again. I'm sorry, guys. I'm just reporting the facts and my opinion as I see the results of what goes on. What if I told you there was this guy? Some people like him, some people hate him. I don't know. I, I have hatred and like for this guy. His name's Bill Gates, the guy behind Microsoft. And I'm not talking about Microsoft at all today. One way or another, the guy has billions of dollars. Billions with a B, Dr. Evil. Billions, right? Okay, so he set this Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation up, and he goes around, and there is, you know... He's trying to kill people, that guy. And I don't know if he is or not, but some of the stuff he's doing looks pretty good. So he decides what he's going to do is he's going to give $40 million, $40 million to a school district and say, use this to improve education in your district, uh, one string attached. To get this money, you need to place teachers on a developmental path. You need to judge their performance, and when they fail to meet a metric, you need to give them remedial training so they can come up to a standard. And if they fail again, you need to do that again. And if they continue to fail, and you cannot get them up to a minimal standard of qualification for teaching, that, by the way, you set, um, then they need to go. And if you can't maintain that, then I'm going to take my millions, and I'm going to go do this with somebody who can. And... School districts from all over the country thought this was a wonderful idea to prove if we just had more money, it would work. Pittsburgh, independent school district, won. Here's the results of it. He gave $40 million to Pittsburgh schools to improve teaching in the classroom. But now that money may be going away. Microsoft made Bill Gates the richest man in the world, and in retirement, he has put his billions of dollars to try to work for the good. Now that includes giving $40 million to Pittsburgh's public schools, but the Gates Foundation may be pulling that funding because of an ongoing fight between the school district and its teachers' union. KDKA investigator Andy Sheehan reports, new at six. 
Four years ago, amid great excitement, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation awarded the Pittsburgh Public Schools an extraordinary grant, $40 million, to become a national model of improving teaching in the classroom. We were so excited when we got selected because we were a long shot. The cooperation between the district and the teachers' union has devolved into an all-out fight over teacher evaluations. The reason we got the grant in the first place, because was because, part of the reason, was because they were impressed with the way we were working together. And now that that's deteriorated, obviously there's a high level of concern. Under the grant, the union and the district were to develop a criteria to evaluate teacher performance, with the idea of rewarding superior educators and retraining those who could not make the grade. But those talks have broken down, and the district and the union have been at a stalemate for months. Sources close to those talks say the Gates Foundation has said it will no longer fund this grant without an agreement. And this week, the foundation issued me this statement, quote, The Gates Foundation made a significant investment in Pittsburgh because their leaders were committed to ensuring every student has an effective teacher in every class. This is complicated work that requires collaboration. The commitment of the board, the superintendent, and the union was a requirement of the grant. We are disappointed by the current turn of events. Carrie Harris of the watchdog group A-plus schools says losing the grant would be catastrophic. I think it would be devastating for the school district. I think it would be devastating for the city. I think, it would, But most of all, I think it would be devastating for kids. We had all this collaboration until it got to this. The teachers' union says it agreed to a system of evaluation, but not the minimum scores requiring retraining. And since teachers who don't improve may be let go, union head Nina Esposito Vizcaitis says the bar has been set too high. When our teachers are treated at a much more severe level than teachers across the state or the country, of course you would be losing teachers that are good teachers. Lane says she twice lowered the minimum scores. I think we've gone to the place where this is as far as we can. I think it's fair. I think it's reasonable. It is not about firing teachers. It is about helping teachers develop. But the disagreement has taken on nationwide implications. The National American Federation of Teachers has put people and resources into Pittsburgh and has called striking down these new standards, quote, a crucial fight. Harris says the issue should be settled locally. They need to get back to the table and do what's right for kids and stay focused on kids, put national interests and political interests aside uh, and come back to the table and, and work for kids. But without an agreement in short order, this grant will die on the vine. The school district will receive a black eye and a golden opportunity to improve education here in Pittsburgh will be squandered. At the Leo Weil Elementary School in the Hill District, Andy Sheehan, KDKA-TV News. All right, so um, the, the answer, I, the, the first thing I want to say after that is what? How does anybody defend the position of a teacher's union here, including the union itself? The administrator, to be fair, seems like she's done. So they set a standard, and they're like, okay, like teachers in our district should be able to be at least this good. This is the metric we're going to judge them on. Gee, like we judge our students. Like if they don't meet a metric, they don't go to the next freaking grade. Okay? Same rules for the teacher. You don't meet a metric, you got to go to remedial. you got to go to summer school. you got to get better. And after a certain amount of time, if you can't get good enough to meet the standard, 
you're out. And you can go work for another district, which will, I'll leave my comments for that for a second. And then teachers fail to meet the standard. So the standard is lowered so that more teachers can meet the standard. And there's still teachers that can't meet the standard. So the standard is lowered a second time. The hurdle is placed lower so that more can acquire the, 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 the necessary momentum to limp their weak ass over it. Right? So we now have lowered a standard that apparently seemed reasonable twice to accommodate those who cannot make the standard. And there are some who still cannot make the standard. Administration looks at it and goes, look, man, if we're lower than this, maybe you shouldn't be teaching at all anyway, regardless of this grant. And the teachers union holds their breath, brings the entire national teachers union force into Pittsburgh and says, we have to put a stop to this. Let me give you guys a clue here. Let me tell you how this works. It's private money. I love this, actually. Because you can whine, you can cry, you can bitch, you can say it's not fair, you can say you're underpaid, you can say whatever you want, but you have no rights whatsoever to this money. Not that I think you have rights to the public money in the first place, but you have the illusion of rights. There's not even the illusion of rights to this money. This money comes with a requirement of performance. And this is the wake-up call, and I know I'm going to tore teachers off, but for a huge percentage of teachers out there, the real world comes with requirements of performance. Period. There is no job that people are more secure in, even in the midst of their own incompetence, than teaching today. That doesn't mean all teachers suck. And those of you who say I mean that, you're probably the teachers that suck. You're probably defending the indefensible position of, well, if, if I can't meet a requirement, they should lower it further for me so I can meet it, because then I'll have to leave and go to another school district. And it's not fair that our standards are higher than other school districts across the state and the country. Okay. Some of you teachers are teaching people things like economics. Okay? So maybe you should understand economics. See, in an economic system, people are rewarded for performance. It's amazing. And different people want to do the same things. Some people go into the business of making flashlights or knives. And each of them tries a different technique. And they go out... And they say, my knife is bigger, my knife is sharper, my knife is made of better metal, my knife costs less, my knife costs more, but it's worth it. And in the end, the market looks at performance and rewards the best performance. Jobs, jobs, real jobs that real people have, that people are working in every day, in every world except the fantasy world of government, you are interviewing to keep your job Every single day. Your performance is judged every single day. Companies set standards every single day. People fail to meet standards or given remedial training and thrown out on their ass when they cannot meet the standard every single day. In every job out there in the real world that you people are supposed to be getting these children ready to go to. Now, if you can't live in that world, how are you possibly functionally capable of getting those children to go into the world that will measure their performance, judge their performance the way that you refuse to be judged. That's number one. Number two, 
the, the, the it's not fair teacup attitude of this union person about how it's unfair that Pittsburgh now has a higher standard than the rest of the state. Okay, let me just, another economic concept is money goes where it's treated well. Okay, and not just where it's treated well, as in the person investing it gets lots of their money given back to them plus more. Money goes where it's treated well, in that the person feels that their investment was worth investing in. Not every investment's for financial return. Some investments are for philanthropic purposes, like this one. So you just got forty million dollars that no other district in your state has given to you by one organization who did so to invest in your future. You should have higher standards than everybody else if money's what you need. Okay, the goal in attracting that type of an investment into your school district should be to make the Pittsburgh school district the shining star of the entire state, so that you can prove that all you need is money. And what you do then, what you do then is you do force the bottom twenty percent of your teachers out. You absolutely do, and you attract the top twenty percent of teachers from the state. Around the rest of the state, or maybe from nearby Ohio or West Virginia, because they want to come work in your school district, where they're rewarded for better performance, and where shitty teachers are thrown out on their ass. They'll want to be there, which will raise the overall performance of the district to the point where people in Pennsylvania will be going, "I want to buy a home, or rent a home, in the Pittsburgh Independent School District." Because they are holding their teachers to a higher standard, and therefore they are holding our children to a higher standard, and they are ensuring that our tax dollars are well spent. See, the reason you can't get that through your head, most teachers that can't get it through your head, the reason you can't get it through your head is you live in a world that has de just demolished and obliterated that alt reality where everybody's nice, everybody's equal, everybody's the same. Well, let me break it down for you. Not everybody's equal, not everybody's the same, and a person who is performing at a level of 60% competency should not be compensated as well as a person performing at a level of 90% competency. You wouldn't do it with a grade or a test score. Why should we do it with our money that we're paying you? And the answer is we should not. And the only solace I have when I look at this idiocy is a fundamental understanding that the educational system as we know it is going to be crumbling into bits in the next decade. You teachers that are not good at your jobs. You better start sharpening up your resume and figuring out how to do something else, because you're going to be out. This fantasy world where you're going to have a job for the rest of your life and benefits for the rest of your life, and, and three months a year off every year, and paid like you work all year round, and then tell us how hard you work. That world is going to go away. You can bitch, you can moan, you can cry, you can say whatever you want. Technology is destroying that, and your failed system is taking the parents. Who are feeding you and making them feel like they don't want to feed you anymore? More and more will opt out. More and more will opt out, and more and more alternative solutions will be developed. And even with the force of a gun from government to try to maintain this archaic institution that was developed as a Prussian system to indoctrinate minds is dying. And there's nothing at this point that can be done to save it. So those of you who are great teachers, start excelling even beyond where you are now.
Start developing yourself beyond where you are now. Start developing your own solutions. Start talking to the other good teachers. Keep your jobs while they're there. But start asking yourself, can I do this better? Can 20 of us get together and do this better? Can we leave behind this crap and put together something for profit, by the way? Because I'll spend money to educate my child. I'm already doing it through the state. I'd rather have some direction on it. And can we say, yes, we will be held to a higher standard, but we will provide a higher result. That's what I want to know. And if you're mad at me, and you're a teacher, you're not definitely, but you're probably one of these lower tier teachers. Because if you're actually really good at what you do, if you're actually good at what you do, it shouldn't matter what profession you're in. You should not want those who are the poorest at what you do treated the same as you. Or allowed to retain a job that pulls down the performance of your entire group. Society does not judge the performance of people in the real world on a bell curve. And we should not judge our teachers that way either. We should have top standards and enforce them. And we're never going to do it in the current public sector. But the system is crumbling. Mark my words, in 10 years, you will not recognize education if you were just transported into the future. Even, even grade school, even high school, even middle school and junior high, you will not recognize the transformation and there will be Thousands and thousands and thousands of teachers without jobs. There will be thousands of pensions lost. Find a different solution. Because if you don't, the market will find it for you. Stop blaming the administrators. In this case, it sounds like the administrator is the only one with a brain. And if it, and if it, I'll tell you one more time, teachers, if you can't fix the system, who the hell do you think can? And, and when you say parents, understand, parents are going to fix it for you. But you're not going to like the results. Let's let's move on to another one. I actually have a uh, a question coming up in the show today that is uh, going to take us right back to the line of thinking we were just in. Um, I I really mean that, and it'll seem totally unrelated. It'll be the next one. You'll be like, how the hell is this related to teachers and grants from Bill Gates and everything? But but let's do a little little thing in the middle here to break things up and keep the uh, variety going and. Stick on the solutions path. Uh, I put up a post today. It was a picture of a rearview mirror with the capital in the background. And uh, maybe the teacher failed me because I, I put review instead of rearview for mirror. But, hey, it's gone viral anyway, it looks like. And it, it's, uh, it's got a saying in it. Uh, and it says, I left the political arena a long time ago, and it continues to get smaller in my rearview mirror. But I know that objects in a rearview mirror are closer than they appear, so I'm stepping on the gas. I hope to see you on the actual road to liberty. And that's that's what I'm talking about today, folks, really, is like instead of trying to fix a broken system, let's do new things. Um, but let's also use the old things that work to provide for ourselves. So here's an example of that. So this comes from William. And William says, uh, uh, could you utilize some of the stumps from chopping and dropping in your food forest to produce mushrooms? Background, I was browsing Clayton Jacobs' website and came across a mushroom kit. Some of them are plugs. 
that you drill into logs or stumps and thought that they'd be a cool way to use some dead space. I thought it'd be different from addition uh, to planting some stuff around the stump. Um, the answer, of course, is yes. But let's talk a little bit about what chop and drop is for those new to the show that haven't heard the food forest stuff. So chop and drop works this, like this. You plant a bunch of trees. And some of those trees are not going to be there in five years or ten years, depending on how you're managing your food forest, which is a whole bunch of trees and bushes and shrubs and vines and all kinds of other stuff, just like a regular forest, except it produces food. Like everything in there or most things in there for the long term are edible or produce something edible or produce something usable. An example would be bamboo. Yeah, you can eat bamboo shoots, but... I mean, there's only so many bamboo shoots you're going to eat, but bamboo is multifunctional as a building tool, as a cooking tool, as a bunch of other things it can do. So everything in there has a function. And some of the stuff you put in there, the function is to put biomass in the ground, accumulate biomass, fix nitrogen, basically to support your other trees. So you might have something like, um, oh, I don't know, a pagoda tree or a uh, another tree like a mimosa tree, which are a legume tree. And these trees produce nitrogen, and over time they release that nitrogen in the soil, and every so often you just cut them back, and you cut them back, and you cut them back, and eventually your fruit trees get up above your nitrogen fixtures, and your nitrogen fixtures have been cut so many times, it's like, oh, I quit. I'm done. I'm done. And it dies. And when it dies... It leaves all that wonderful root matter in the ground, then it's put mulch to the ground over and over again as you've chopped it and dropped it, chopped it and dropped it. And what Will's saying is, hey, you know what? Can I take that stump now and grow mushrooms? And the answer is you might be able to. The thing is that mushroom production, most good mushrooms are produced on hardwoods. And most of your leguminous trees are fast-growing trees. They're not a softwood, but they're not really like an oak or a hickory or something like an apple or something that would do better. So a lot of them aren't going to do that great. Um, but if you've removed some things like some old oaks and stuff like that, you could do that. Now, here's the other thing that you can do in your food forest. You can take a log. Let's say you have a piece of hickory or you have a piece of oak or you have a piece of hardwood. Maybe you've done some pruning of your fruit trees and you've got some pretty thick prunings. Well, you can bury that a couple feet in the ground and, and, and drill holes in it and plug that. And the ground will wick moisture into it to keep it moist, just like a stump sitting in the ground, and that will produce mushrooms for you. And there's a lot of other things that you can do as far as mushroom production. You know, if you're doing things like with forest gardens, where you're not just chopping and dropping, but you have lots of mulch, more of a zone two or zone one approach. We have a lot of wood mulch. You can then into that wood mulch, get like a sawdust mulch, and, and inoculate those wooded areas. And that can be done even in more of a true forest with leaves and all, but it works really good where you have either a sawdust or a, a shredded wood mulch. One of the ones that you might really consider would be Kingstrophoria. They're an awesome mushroom, red top. They get really big, but they're better when they're small. Um, that's a great mushroom uh, to consider for use like that. King Oyster is another good mushroom that will do that. For you, you know, morals will, they're not as great, but they certainly will work. Uh, they're a great mushroom to eat, but they're not as reliable uh, to uh, to show up for you. White oyster uh, is another one. Lion's mane. There's a lot of different 
mushrooms that are available to sawdust spawn that in a lot of your food forest applications can be utilized in that deep mulch litter. Uh, that's another way to take advantage of that. And of course, the more shade you get, the moisture it gets, and the more your herbs and your brush and your shrub in the deeper part of your food forest won't grow, the better things get for the mushrooms. But the reason um, that I, I lead off with uh, the garden giant mushroom, the Kingstrophoria, is that it is one of the few mushrooms that almost always, if inoculated sufficiently, starts to just show up on its own over and over and over and over again. Um, it becomes uh, indigenous to your zones, as long as the environment stays conducive. So to me, it's a really good investment, because I'm not having to do it over and over and over again. I might have to do it really, really intensely one year, and then maybe a lighter application the second year. And by that time, I start to build up all of the biology of, the, of my environment to where that mushroom becomes just something that grows there. And it's, it's a great-tasting mushroom, and it's not something you find in supermarkets. And I like to grow the stuff you can't find in supermarkets. So um, that would be one of the things I would, I would tell you to consider in addition to the log plugging Um, to consider inoculating your mulch. Now, on tree stumps and stuff like that, it's important. It's not like you'll die if you don't or it'll never work if you don't, but it's important, really, if to, to, to have a high probability of success with, with dowel plugging. So what this is, they have these little wooden dowels, and it's got the mushroom spawn on them, and you drill a hole into the log, and you take a hammer, and you knock that plug into the log. And then what actually happens with mushrooms is the part you eat isn't really the mushroom. It's the fruit of the mushroom. The mushroom itself, the fungus itself, is this interweb of, of, of mycelium, right? So it's like a, 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 like a giant spider web. And it goes through the log. And then at some point, when it's ready to run its reproductive cycle and the conditions are right, it's wet enough, it's cool enough, it's warm enough, the shade's right, everything's right, it flowers, so to speak. It's not really a flower, because a mushroom is like the enigma. You've got plant, and you've got animal, and then you've got fungus. It's like its own little world. But it, that's a good way to think of it. Fruiting or flowering, pop, that mushroom comes up. And then you eat the mushroom. Well, when you're plugging logs, understand that once you have a piece of wood dead, if it's in a moist area, if it's in any area that there's fungus at all, Fungus immediately are attracted to it and start colonizing it. So you want to plug your cut lumber or your cut stumps left in the ground as quickly as possible before your fungus of choice is competing with other fungi. Because you may come by and see like a bunch of mushrooms growing out of a log one day and go, well, those are mushrooms, that's not what I planted. And let me tell you the rule about mushrooms. If you are not 1,000% sure of what that mushroom is, don't eat it. There are mushrooms that will make you hallucinate and think you licked the back end of a cool frog or something. And there's other mushrooms that will kill you dead. And you don't mess around with mushrooms. Either you know or you don't know. It's part of why I like cultivating them. I've planted it. I know exactly what I'm looking for. There it is. I become very familiar with it. And again, that's part of what I like about the Kingstrophoria is it's very obvious what it is. There's really not anything else that looks a lot like it. 
Um, and I think it's probably something we're going to invest quite a bit of money in real soon into these little forest gardens that we're doing the deep mulch in and start getting them uh, inoculated into uh, our, our wood chips because it's just easy as all get out to do. And I'm actually, I always talk about working on the member support brigade. I'm contacting different companies now that do this and trying to find a discount uh, from one of them for you. I'll be hitting somebody up today that I think would be a great partner. Uh, now with that, let's get into the uh, next one. This is the one I said that we would actually come back to talking about the whole thing, the line of thought we were on with with teachers, and you'll think at the beginning that it has nothing to do with it. This comes from Mitch. Uh, Mitch says, you're right again, though I never doubted this one. The U.S. Treasury Secretary warns of Bitcoin's possible illegal uses. Again, I know that sounds like, you know, that doesn't have anything to do with it. Give me a minute, and you'll see how it does. Lou calls Bitcoin, that's our Treasury Secretary, a place to hide shares. Uh, so the U.S. government leads more time, needs more time to assess the Bitcoin phenomenon. Now everything is a phenomenon with the government. To ensure the virtual currency isn't used for unlawful purposes, Treasury Secretary Jacob J. Lou said. This is on Bloomberg. I'll put a link in today's show notes. Lou, who leads the Obama administration's efforts to fight illicit financial finance globally. Uh, Lou, if you want to fight illicit finance, go check out the Federal Reserve. And go check out the fact that right now, economies all over the globe are imploding due to the Federal Reserve's illicit finance activities. Big countries, small countries, currency collapses are ongoing throughout the world. More on that later in the show. Back to the article. Lou, who leads the Obama administration's efforts to fight illegal, illicit finance globally, said he discussed Bitcoin with J.P. Morgan Chase and Company Chief Executive Officer Jamie Dimon and shares a certain, uh, quote, we have to make sure it does not become an avenue to funding illegal activities or to funding activities that have malign purposes like Terrorist activities. It's always the terrorists when they hate something. Lou said in an interview with CNBC uh, at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, quote, it's an anonymous form of transaction. It offers places for people to hide. In other words, you're able to do business without telling us about it, and we don't like that. You do not have a right to be to privately have commerce with another individual in the minds of these people. Understand, that's what this is saying. Lou said the Treasury has, quote, made it clear through enforcement actions that we will work at these forms of transaction and we will enforce all the rules we have on illegal money activity, end quote. In other words, we're not going to do shit right now because we ain't figured out how, but if there is something we can do, we're going to do it. That, that's, that's what they're saying. Um, the price of Bitcoin soared in November, topping 1000 for the first time. As speculators anticipated broader use of the digital money, the price has since dropped to around $815 on Bitstamp, one of the more active exchanges where Bitcoins are traded for dollars and other currencies. One Bitcoin cost about $15 a year ago. Bitcoin was introduced in 2008 by a programmer or group of programmers going under the name Satsui Namoko. There are 21 million possible Bitcoins that can be mined by peer-to-peer -peer network harnessing computers to complete complicated mathematical calculations. About 12.2 million units are currently in circulation, according to BitcoinCharts.com. Earlier, it had been told CNBC that Bitcoin is a terrible store of value. All right. Let's start off with the first thing that all these people shitting on Bitcoin need to understand. 
the people using Bitcoin, with a very small group exception, are not doing it to invest in it the way you buy freaking pork bellies or corn futures. They're not doing it to become millionaires by holding Bitcoin. If it happens to go up in value, great. It works out. It's worked out for a lot of people. I wish I bought a lot of Bitcoins uh, back last spring, but I'll tell you what, there's a lot of stocks I can say that about, so I'm not going to crawl over spilled Bitcoins. right? But it's not a get-rich-quick scheme. It is a way to exchange data, but here's the bigger thing. Here's the bigger thing. This is what I want you to watch out for. I promise you, you're going to see a full frontal assault on Bitcoin now. This is like the first real shot over the bow. Top administrator saying, this is bad, 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 bad. And the word terrorism. It's terrorists. It's the terrorists. It's the t Every time they want to control you, it's like a magic red button they push to scare the shit out of you. It's starting to stop working on people, though. Have you noticed that? The terrorist button. The terrorist button. People are starting to go... Yeah, I remember the freaking terror alert, orange status, yellow status, red status, green status, blue, purple, dinosaur status, whatever. Uh, looking back over these years of how dangerous the terrorists were, I was more likely to get killed by a shark than a terrorist. So maybe I'm going to stop letting you do everything. But terrorists. Terrorists. That means they are on the frontal assault on this thing. And this is what they're going to do. They are going to turn the Hollywood apparatus on this you will start to see in crime shows and things like that and references and sitcoms to bitcoin from a negative standpoint that the guy we're trying to we could find him except they used bitcoin now we can't find him well did you check his credit card records we tried he's been using something called bitcoin bitcoin what's that Like, like a complete idiot, like, you know, that's in a financial crimes, you know, division or stuff. They won't know what the hell it is. Well, it's this new thing, and what they do is they can send money, and no one will know. I will bet you that if you scan the whole production of television on mainstream media from now until the end of the year, there'll be no less than 20 times that Bitcoin's referenced that way. From almost no mention at all in those types of, of, of uh, documentary, not documentary, entertainment, right? To a, a, a real planting of a seed in the mind of the average person. This is for evil purposes. Now, how does this relate to the, the, the meme we were on about teachers and the Bill Gates money and not understanding the real world? What you're seeing with Gates and what he did there. And what other people are doing with big solutions that involve millions of dollars and small solutions such as I'm done with you and I'm taking my child's education as my own responsibility and homeschooling or we're doing unschooling or we're doing unstructured schooling. Uh, we have new forms of private education coming in is the market saying and there's a market for everything, including education. That's why there's a you know a multi-trillion dollar bubble about to explode for student loans because that market is blown up the bad way. But the market saying, the people saying, we are tired of hearing you talk about how you're going to fix a system that you haven't fixed for over a hundred years, that you've taken more and more of time, money, and resources and put it into and made it perform worse than it ever has. The average eighth grader in 1900 was smarter than the average eighth grader today. I'll bet you if you got a exam, a final exam for 8th grade 
in 1900 and took only the parts that are still true that we haven't changed our belief about, right, because of scientific advancement, just the hardcore fundamentals of an 8th grader in 1900, 90% or more of 8th graders today would fail that test. They would fail that test cold. But we spend so much more money than we ever did before. And you keep telling us you need more. Okay, You have a system that has failed to deliver what's promised. And what you're seeing is a response where people are reaching a point that it's time for an innovative leap. Okay, And this is what, you know, people get on conservators for not wanting to change, but boy, it's... A lot of times it's the quote-unquote liberals that don't want to change that are clinging to these paradigms of a social order, okay? And, and this belief that, like, you just have to have teachers, so there's a job, it has to be this way, it has to fit in this box. And the market is starting to go, we're tired, we're done. We're not even going to go inside and try to change what you do anymore. We're just going to go over here and do our own thing. That's Bitcoin. It's a point where people have gotten to a point where they look at financial institutions of the world and the corrupt nature of it, the manipulation of it, the control of it, the fact that money is sold as debt into circulation, and somebody finally said, enough. And no, we're not just going to do use you know constitutional silver, pre-64 coin and exchange that. We, and we're not just going to use silver and gold because that doesn't, that doesn't transfer in a modern age with an Internet. We're going to develop a new currency. We're just gonna, we're just gonna go, you guys keep your Federal Reserve notes, you keep your manipulation, your bond market rates, and all of this other shit, and we're just gonna go over here, and we're just gonna develop our own solution, and you don't worry about it anymore, because you're not, you're no longer allowed to talk about solutions. You've created the problem, therefore you have no right to decide how to solve it. We wish you would, but we know you can't, so we're gonna go over here and do it. And in all instances, you see teachers attacking homeschoolers. You see teachers attacking unschoolers. You see the educational market attacking distance-based education, saying it doesn't work, it's not the same, blah, blah, blah. Not Too late. The, the, the tide is turned, and the momentum is now with the opposition. The opposition is not even, they're not even fighting you. They're running away from you. They're running toward a better system. They're like, you don't worry. If we suck, don't worry about it. We'll never succeed. You have every advantage in the world. You have a monopoly on education. You have a monopoly on monetary creation. If we suck, there's no way we're going to succeed. So you just do your shit and we're going to go over here. And yet, J.P. Morgan Chase attacks Bitcoin. J.P. Morgan Chase, who can create money by typing numbers into a computer. When you go to J.P. Morgan, they go, I'd like to buy a house, please. And they go, why, yes, you've qualified after filling out 97 forms and convincing us that we can, we can make a good gamble on you. We'll loan you money. They don't loan you money. They do not give you money. They use you to create money. They type in, you want how much? $250,000. Enter into account $250,000. And that money is created out of thin air. Fractional reserve banking. That's how it works. If you struggle with that, go look it up on YouTube. I can't go into the whole thing today. I've done whole shows on it. But that's how it really works. They don't hold 10% and loan 90. They take the 100% that they're holding and loan up to nine times that amount. So if the bank's holding $1,000, it can loan $9,000. Not if it holds 1000 it can loan 900 Got it? Okay, so that's their system. 
And it breeds debt and interest. And the higher in the chain you are, the cheaper you can buy the money for. And the lower in the chain you are, the more expensive the money is. The bank can now buy the money for zero. You're buying the money for 6% on a mortgage. You're buying the money for 19% on a credit card. And you're buying the money at various costs all along, and then the inflation on the back side of it is a hidden cost. It's a hidden tax. So, then they start to tell you what you can and can't do with your money. More on that in a second. Like, you can't withdraw it unless we tell you you can. If you want to withdraw more than a certain amount, you have to tell us why you want the money. Oh, you can't move your money to this country. You can't move your money to that country. We need to see this money. We need to tax this money for existing. We're assigning a wealth tax. We're assigning a distribution tax. They start putting controls on the money that they already control the creation of. And what does the market say? Enough. Enough. We're not going to fight the system from within anymore. The hell with end the Fed. You guys go end yourself. We're going to go do this thing. And J.P. Morgan attacks them. And the, one of the big reasons, think about this. If I want to move a million dollars through conventional means, whether it's credit, PayPal, the banking sector, it's a very expensive transaction. The financial market makes a lot of money just by me transferring a million dollars to you. Um, Bitcoin can transfer a million dollars literally for a few bucks. Just in the transfer fee, the competition represented by Bitcoin is enormous. Of course they're going to attack it. And get ready for the... And this is... See, I've always said this about Bitcoin. My concern with Bitcoin is, was never does it work. Is it legitimate? Is, if you can exchange it, if it's fungible, it, it works. If two Bitcoins in two different parts of the world have the same relative value of exchange, then you're good. It's fungible. If on the same day, at the same time, both Bitcoins are exchangeable for $600 or 10 ounces of silver, or 15 bars of gold-pressed latinum from Star Trek, or whatever it is, then it's legitimate. And if it's used and accepted and convertible, it's legitimate. The system itself makes complete sense. It actually makes more sense than any government-issued currency that we currently have. My concern is, can the government turn its apparatus on it to kill it? It can't compete with it, but it can make just say, you know what, it's too dangerous for making it illegal. Those of you who are take, taking or sending Bitcoin are committing a federal crime. The, the mere possession of a Bitcoin amounts to money, la money laundering. Who knows what these assholes will do? That's my concern for it. Not the functionality of it. But that's the attack. And the attack is because society has said, we're done. Now, same thing with education. And same thing with many sectors. Now, here's the fundamental reality. While they're worried about Bitcoin, while it's finally gotten their attention, and I'm not talking about Litecoin and all the other things that use the Bitcoin model, new methods of exchanging value will be developed. This evolution, once it begins, it doesn't just take one corner and stop, especially if it's not a state-sponsored or corporatocracy-sponsored shift. See, this is a private shift. In the education market, it's a private shift. And in many other markets, these are private shifts. And in many instances, there's not one person trying to make money on it. It's not like you can sue Bitcoin Inc. There is no Bitcoin Inc. It doesn't exist. There's no one entity to go after. It's not a profit-motivated shift. It's a function-motivated. People are tired and saying, we want something that works better. Well, because of that... 
the next shift will come because the people that are responsible for the first shift don't have a vested interest in preventing the second one or the third one or the fourth one or the fifth one. In fact, people are going to start saying, how far can we go? And can we get to a point where we can exchange value completely anonymously, even more seamlessly than Bitcoin, with greater protections than Bitcoin, which is already the best thing I can see other than the target on it from the United States government and other governments around the world. And so It's really not even the government that really is after it. Notice this is the, the Treasury, right? Which is, you know, part and parcel to the Federal Reserve. It's the banking interests who actually control the government that are targeting this thing. Because it threatens to tear apart a centuries-old paradigm where the banking elite control the money of the world. It threatens to just snuff it out. Because people are now aware that it's even possible. That's the danger to them. So, if anybody wants to take my action, um, I'll need somebody to look for it, though, because I don't watch these shows anymore. But I'll bet you at least 20 appearances of it. I'll get a few here and there that'll come in. But if you see it, if you see any mention of Bitcoin, specifically as money laundering, sex trade, drug trade, tax evasion, whatever, in mainstream media, please email me about it and just put Bitcoin uh, slander for Jack in the subject line. That way I'll get it and I'll start maybe one, maybe even like four or five months into it. I'll be like, ding, 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 we're already there. It's occurred. Here's the mentions. I'd love that. So those of you that have still watched the boob tube, and, and I do too, right? Um, everything from criminal minds to last man standing, you're going to see stuff injected about the negative connotations of Bitcoin. You'll see some place where kids in school are selling drugs with Bitcoin across their iPhones. Want to bet? Want to bet? I bet you don't. All right, let's go ahead and uh, move on to it. All right, again, shifting gears completely so that we don't get bogged down in a place where we're going to get angry and get our blood pressure all up at the beginning of the week. Let's, let's take a question that's completely different uh, and something many of you guys may be considering and need to know more about. This comes from Chris in Northwest Georgia. What are the various benefits of having one's property designated as agriculture zoned? What are the requirements and how does one go about obtaining this status? Also, is the same program that allows is it the same program that allows farmers to purchase agricultural related equipment sales tax free? I have 18 acres in Northwest Georgia and I'm in the process of planting muscadines as well as other fruit brushes and trees. I hope to bring a couple of beehives to help with the pollination and for honey. We have local farmer's market where I can sell my surplus. I've toyed around with the notion of setting up a U-picket operation of either muscadized blackberries or both. This would be a longer-term plan use of my property. I want to take advantage of any tax breaks that might be out there, Chris, in northwest Georgia. Um, the actual approvals done locally through your state's Department of Agriculture, I believe, and I don't know if it's the same everywhere, but this is what I know about Texas. If you have land that's not currently agriculturally exempt, it must be dedicated to agricultural production for at least five of the last seven years. And it also has to do with how much of the land is actually used. I'm not sure on the sales tax exemption if that's a separate filing, but the two are related. You're using agricultural purposes. You're running an agricultural concern. It would make sense that your land was zoned agriculture. You're exempt from certain sales taxes. Uh, I'm not... 
an expert on this at all, but yeah. Uh, let's talk about it from a land use standpoint, though, and what are the advantages and what are the disadvantages. Um, the, the primary advantage is you pay less tax. That's, that's it. That's really what it's all about. You pay less tax, especially in property taxes, and it is a big cut. I saw properties that were ag-exempt when we were looking to buy the place that we finally found here in Azle, Texas. And some of those properties were properties that you know a similar property, the person would be paying $3,000 a year in taxes on in this, a given area, and the property taxes on them were four or $500 or less. So it's a, it's a massive exemption because the property is considered worth less money because it's being used for agricultural purposes versus developed purposes. Um, even though the land is obviously being used for a profit, et cetera, et cetera. What are the disadvantages? Well, number one, you're subject to government oversight that you normally wouldn't be. But in this case, it's probably worth it. Basically, there's ag inspectors that go around once in a while and make sure that you're actually doing agricultural functions on the land. Um, the, 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 the problem gets into when you're looking to sell. You can't do an FHA loan. You can't do a VA loan and buy ag-exempt land. And if you remove the agricultural exemption, you could be on the hook for back taxes on it in some instances as well, or the buyer could. So it's a little harder to sell sometimes, even though people find it quite advantageous due to the ability to obtain financing. So you don't have to have a track record of being a farmer to buy ag-exempt land, but you're going to be put into a position that's far more along the lines of what you got to do to get a loan when you're self-employed, a lot more documentation of income and things like that, because you have to go get an ag loan to buy the ag property, especially if you're considering making your primary residence. That's something I have some experience with, and that's kind of the lowdown on that. So you may reduce your number of potential buyers by zoning a property agricultural. Um, as far as how you do it, your state should have the information you need on the Internet. You can look it up. Uh, if you do how to get ag exemption in Georgia, you'll find all types of information on it and what you need to do. They are pretty particular on you know land use. If you have a couple beehives over there, well, where's the rest of it? Right, so, and they're going to be tighter on the initial approval than they are the ongoing use, uh, in, in my gut feeling. Because think about what's happening. You're asking your local authorities to approve cutting their own money. That's, that's what you're doing. You're saying, look, um, yeah, I know that you, uh, were getting like three grand out of me, but now you're going to get like five. And a lot of times the whole property is not considered exempt. Like, so if you live in the house, they'll say, well, the house has a value, the land around the house has a value, but the 20 acres that's being cultivated is going to be taxed as ag land, and we're going to tax this as, as residential, even though it's all zoned out. It's weird. I don't, I don't get, but that's kind of how it works. Like, it won't cut all your taxes to nothing. You'll end up with kind of a, a non-ag use and an ag use, in my understanding. Um, and then you do have an obligation to maintain that is agricultural land. It's now zoned for agricultural use. And they might be harder on a permaculturist than somebody that's not doing anything, really. I've seen a lot of ag zoned land, and here's what they have. They have a whole bunch of grass. It grows. They cut it a couple times a year for hay. They even roll up some of the bales and set it out at the end of the thing so when the ag guy comes by, you can see some hay bales. 
And they don't really do much with it at all. Um, reading off of my state's website, this is what you need for approval. The land must be devoted principally to agricultural use. Agricultural use includes the production of crops, livestock, poultry, fish, or cover crops. It can also, it can include leaving the land idle for a government program for normal crop livestock rotation, land used for raising certain exotic animals, including exotic birds, to produce human food or other items of commercial value, and cutting wood for use in fences or structure on adjacent Recent agricultural land also qualifies. Using land for wildlife management is an agricultural use. Such land was previously qualified. Open space land is actively used for wildlife management. Wildlife management land must be used in at least three of seven specific ways to propagate a breeding population of wild animals for human use. Contact your local appraisal office for details. They'll be from the government in here to help you. Um, but... It sounds like you could do this with some concerns, all right? Um, if it's if it's zoned residential and within a town limit or city limit, it may be that they will interfere with your ability to change it to an ag. They may say we do not allow ag zoning inside the city limits, or we don't allow it without special approval. So that would be another thing. And the other thing is you have to really kind of step up the whole process to where when an ag inspector comes out there and looks at it and say, well, what do you do with that? Well, we do this. Well, what's that do? Well, that grows this, and we use that to feed the chickens. And then we do this, and then this is sold off this way. And if you have all your you know, T's crossed and I's dotted, and I would think you need to document this over time because you're looking five years out in Texas anyway, it may be different in your state, then you should be able to get this done. But please understand... That's what you're doing, and you are getting yourself in a situation now where if you want to turn around and sell this, the financing is not as easy to obtain as selling a house where somebody can run to Fannie Mae or, or what have you, uh, or a returning vet can just get a VA loan. It's, it's, it's not quite as simple, so that is something to consider. But that's Now, on that note, I haven't talked much about permaethos lately. We're going to be meeting with somebody on some ideas about the original idea of community and, and see what he says. But um, on the concept of government making you sad, um, the more we look at doing this, as we try to do it as a true community, the more we get into a position where no matter where we do it, it's a quote-unquote subdivision. Uh, we talked to the folks, Mike Reynolds folks out in New Mexico, the Earthship guy, about what happened when they just did it out in the middle of nowhere, by the way. They ended up with over $2 million in fines, and they suggest that you do this stuff in advance. Mike Reynolds actually lost his architectural license over this whole thing and what have you. Um, it looks more and more like it's like a multi-million dollar project just to get approved. And it may not be doable the way we had planned. Now, we're going to talk to somebody that's in civil engineering and see if there's a if there's an end around in doing this or something like that. And, and if there is, we can move forward. If not, I have another idea in the same vein, but with a major shift. And I'm hoping that not only all of those of you that were interested in doing it the first time might be interested in helping doing something that's the same but different. And it would not involve a bunch of people all living together in the same place. But what it would involve is developing permaculture farms with an ownership share for all members of the farm. Club, I guess, is the way to do it. Uh, to keep it from being an investment, it would be more of a members-owned farm um, with, after three years, a return of investment back to the members. 
doing it open source, doing it in a way that it's easily replicatable, doing it in a way with all failures and successes are open, all things that are developed are open source. So if you find a specific way to do something, there's no secrets, there's no holding anybody back. Um, it can be profitable for some people, but not insanely stupid profitable, uh, really community owned and maybe could be the catalyst that leads to more of the community types, but maybe it's not 140 people on 250 acres. Maybe it's 10 families on 40 or 80 acres eventually as the farm is developed and employment opportunities for tenants to live there and work there are developed. Um, I think I'd need to raise between $300,000 and $500,000 to do this. That said, we did sales in those numbers for Jeff Lawton's PDC course. And I took nothing out of it. So I know it's possible out of this audience. I know that we believe in what we're doing enough. I'm refining it with Josiah right now. Um, and I think it's the most innovative way to attack this problem and develop a way where other people can look at it, take a template, I mean, have a document prepared. This is how you do this. Pick it up, run with it, and do it again. Pick it up and run with it and do it again. And to brand it as an ethos farm, a perma-ethos farm, um, but with no single corporate entity holding that, just simply there's certain tenets of liberty and freedom and return of surplus, etc., that go into being an ethos farm. And if you want to take our template and do 90% of it, believe out certain things that are actually hard tenets of how to do it, you're free to do it, but you just can't call it an ethos farm. It'd be a community-owned trademark. That, like, If you say that, this is what it means, and if you were saying it and you weren't on the, the Permethos website as being this, then people would know you're a liar and the market would punish you for it. Nobody would sue you. Uh, complete voluntary association. An absolute refusal to take any government subsidies or grants. Though we would take private grants, we would never take a government grant. I think it's a winning idea. Before I totally bring it to you, I need to um, refine it. I may not release the full plan until Permaculture Voices because that would be a great place to really say this is the refined plan, this is how we want to go forward. But I'm thinking instead of having investors that you're asking for $25,000, you're looking in a neighborhood of having membership shares of about $500. Bucks. Uh, and a person can buy as many as they want up to a certain point. Maybe we can, I don't know. But I got to figure out how to do it from a legal standpoint to protect myself and a legal standpoint to protect the corporation that would be owned uh, by me and by a way to legally protect all the members and to make sure everybody completely understands, like, okay, you're putting this in, you're going to get reports on everything that happens, you're going to have access to all the information, there's certain member privileges that are, are granted back to you for your membership, and that at this time frame, probably 36 months in, there are member rebates based on the profitability of, of the farm. The reason I'm doing this and considering this angle is that I have been emotionally kind of just trampled on by the realization that I have so much goodwill out there that I can come to this audience and say, let's do something that's never been done before. And people will show up in the hundreds and say, I want to be part of this. I want to live there. I want to build there. I want to contribute. I want to do things. I want to be part of this. And, 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 and well over a hundred showing up and going, I got 25 grand. I believe in what you're doing enough that I would be willing to consider investing the money to the point where I, you know, I could take 
if every investor that's pledged the interest were to, to, to step up and do it over two and a half million dollars sitting there to solve this problem. And then I turn around and I see what is, as I've always said, and this is proof of it. If you solve the money equation problem to the grand problems in society today, the next problem you'll run into is a government. And a government that, from what we understand now, wants us to have, here's where all the roads will be, here's where all the lots will be, here's how they're going to be, before we even own the property, before they'll tell us whether we can do it or not. And then the cost of doing that, I mean, it's like, listen, we want to buy some land, we want to build some off-grid buildings, we want to have people live there by their own choice, we want to see to our own problems, we won't want to burden you with anything, we'll pay you your tax bill, if anybody puts in a septic tank, we'll pay you your permit fee, can we do that? Well, we don't know, we haven't seen exactly how you're going to do it yet. And I, and I can't turn around to you and say, well, I'll take your money in good conscience in that environment. So what I've been thinking of for the past three weeks now on this is, is and I've still have Joe trying to, we're still trying to do it the other way. It just may not be doable, was this concept. When I was in the military, it was very clear that when you were given a mission, it was a mission. You are to do this, and you are to get this done. And often, you were told of the larger mission as well, like this is so that this can happen. And if you ended up in a position where there was absolutely no way to accomplish the mission as it was dictated, you're required to say to yourself, let me rewrite the plan and we gotta get, we gotta get the overall objective accomplished. And you have to think independently and you have to communicate with others, hey, we've made a shift, but here's why, here's what we're doing. I can't do what you asked me to do. It's impossible. It cannot be done. All I'm gonna do is get everybody killed. There's, there's no way. And sometimes you're told, well, you go do that anyway. But the spirit is you figure out another way. And if you tell command, hey, this will work, and command buys into it, then you take that other approach. And it might be a complete rewrite of the mission. In most instances, on a critical mission, you're given a mission and a contingency mission. So they tell you flat out, if this cannot be accomplished, this is what you do next. So I was thinking about that. How do I rewrite this? And the basic concept is that we go and we buy a farm, We hire a farm steward. We pay them a living wage. They get to live on the farm. We buy a farm that's already ag-exempt, which is what made me think of this and bring it up. Um, we get a couple tenant farmers to work underneath them that are paid a far less wage, living like a tiny house situation that we put on the property, which seeds things for the future. They're basically being trained to eventually become a farm steward and go establish another one of these that can be done with the help of another person or can be done on their own. And the whole thing starts to cascade. The first one's the hardest. Once it's proven, it, it's known that it can be done. There'll be many others that want to support it. And all of the Ethos Farms pledge to support the development of more. The antithesis of competition. So instead of compete, like I don't, like when you start up a company making medical kits, you don't really want another company making metal kit kits starting up, especially if they're similar to what you do, because they're competing for the same business. But let's face it, when in the world of high-quality food, the market's so much bigger than the supply that we, we actually need to develop the market. We need each other to have a market to sell, and we need to stop just bitching about General Mills and soybeans and fructose corn syrup and saying there's a better way and start doing it. This is the way we can do it, and we can make it replicatable. And that first one, we can reach out to the community and say, if you can't donate money, donate time. Come there and woof with us. We'll put in a bunkhouse. You can stay here for six weeks. Help. Hey, you have a whole bunch of trees? 
This is how you do cuttings and propagate cuttings. Propagate 100 cuttings for us and donate them next year. And then being good stewards of that, when you have an 80-acre or bigger concern, which is what I'm thinking we can do here for this amount of money, and you have thousands and thousands of trees and bushes and vines, and the next Ethos Farm is being founded, members who want to help found that farm can come, take cuttings, we can propagate cuttings, we can hand, you see what I'm saying? They can actually be the seed stock for the next next situation. And it doesn't matter how many people get into the business of producing beyond organic lamb and beef and chicken and high-quality produce right now. They're not going to step on each other's toes. The market is bigger than the supply. And if you ever get to a point where the supply is bigger than the market, everybody reach around, pat each other on the back, because what it means is we've solved the problem. And the beauty of this model is, yes, there's a rebate back to the members, but there's no debt. A debt-free farm forever. There's never a debt. And that farm steward is not guaranteed a job for life. His primary role is to develop to a point where he can kind of step up to the point of creating another farm, as are the tenant farmers and as are many of the woofers. This is designed to be like a franchise without a franchise owner, you know, corporation capitalizing on it and making all the money to return the surplus. And there's a lot of other things I have in it. And I'll bring more to you about it uh, in coming weeks. And I, I will probably reserve the formal presentation for the second half of my presentation at Permaculture Voices, which will be videoed, which I will record, which I will share with this audience, um, and which I will release the PowerPoint of to this audience as well. So don't worry um, but I just think it's a hell of an opportunity. Uh, and by the way, we're like five degrees away from having AgriTrue, those of you who remember what that is, available and deliverable. That will be another initiative that people can help with. And my partner, John Chrislinger, in that business, will be presenting at Voices and talking about it, among other things. We're going to take the prepper survivalist community into the heart of hippie permaculture at Voices. And we're going to demonstrate that we're the people that aren't talking about it. We're the people that are doing it. And I'd really like to see some of you guys at Voices. Remember, if you're coming to Permaculture Voices in California in March, if you email me at jackofthesurvivalpodcast.com with Permaculture Voices in the subject line, I'll put you in a folder and any meetups or anything we set up while we're out there, I make sure I'll email that list of people and say, hey, we're going to all meet over here for a beer or something like that. Because I think we're going to need a few while we're out there. Anyway, let's move on to something else. On to a totally unrelated thing, but more of government interference. It says, uh, this is from Jose. Jose says, hey, Jack, can you take a few minutes to explain net neutrality to me? Uh, net neutrality is the very definition of a backdoor government takeover of the Internet in some ways. It sets precedent for the government regulating the Internet if it ever passes. As you might think, the usual suspects, the Democrats have lined up for that. Um, the Republicans have lined up mostly against it. And it's dead in the water right now, not going anywhere, and hasn't gone anywhere, and didn't even go anywhere when the Democrats had control of both houses and the presidency. So you know it's probably not going to see the light of day. I can't say that the financial interest of big business on the other side doesn't have a, a reason for opposing it that is actually almost as nefarious as the reason for those who want to support it. As usual, both sides are serving the interests of themselves rather than the interests of the people. But here's the basic concept. Uh, there's a fear 
that Internet service providers may start charging people like me a higher fee to let you access my content. Because in the words of the crazy senator from Alaska, the tubes are full. You know, let me play that little insanity breakdown about why maybe we should have, you know, a health check for members of Congress for their cognitive functions before we let them remain in office. Let me just play this. This is the fear that's going to happen if we don't see the net neutrality. Uh, is allowing all of these uh, entities that support this uh, to provide streaming stuff going on on the, on the, the internet. Now the internet, you know, let's go back. Internet started with, with a concept of local to local connections across the country, uh, and, and uh, you, you could go for Air Alaska, but you only had you had to go through con local connections to get there. The industry wisely provided for uh, streaming uh, for, in effect, a new kind of long distance, and, and that's what we've got. We've got a service that's immune to distance. And it's there for the consumer. But, but when we take uh, uh, and uh, really uh, indicate that anyone that wants to use the, the, this system for massive, massive com uh, uh, commercial purposes, well, there's one company now you, you can you can get, sign up and you can get a, a, a movie delivered to your house daily. By, by, by subscription, by, by delivery service, okay? Uh, and, and currently it comes to your house, you put in a mailbox when you get home, and, and, and your monthly, you, you change your order. But you pay for that, right? This service is now going to go through the Internet, and what you do is you just go to, to a place on the Internet, and, and you, you order your, your movie, and guess what? You can order ten of them, and, and it's delivered to you, and this delivery charge is free, right? Ten movies streaming across that, that inter internet, and what happens to your own personal internet? I, I just the other day got inter internet was sent by my staff at 10 o'clock in the morning on Friday. I got it yesterday. Why? Because it got tangled up with all of these things that are going on the internet commercially. And, and here we have this one situation where enormous entities want to use the internet for their purpose to save money for do doing what they're doing now. They use FedEx. They use the, the delivery services. They, they use the mail. They, they, they deliver in other ways, but they want to deliver vast amounts of information over the Internet. And again, the Internet is not something that you just dump something on. It's not a big truck. It's, it's a series of tubes. And if you don't understand, those tubes can be filled. And if they're filled, when you put your message in, it gets in line. It's going to be delayed by anyone that puts into that tube enormous amounts of material. <laughs> Just point out that this is the level of knowledge that the people that are charged with regulating our society have about the very things that they're regulating. And this is true of firearms and many other things on the Gun control thing. I have something coming for you this week that you're going to love, but it'll come later. But this is the level of intelligence and knowledge that's being applied to the regulation. This is all the way from back in 2006. Uh, this is the last senator who has, has passed away at this point, and I, you know, I feel for his family and all, but I'm, I, you know, I'm glad he's not making laws anymore. He sounds like he's got. I don't know, dementia or something, and a complete lack of understanding, basically threatening that the whole Internet was going to collapse if we didn't do something about this. So there's two sides of the net neutrality debate, and the one is that what could be done is that 
an internet service provider more on the lines of the the your provider would actually put in two lanes of traffic, a fast lane and a slow lane, but then charge me to reach you via your fast lane versus your slow lane. And that would be one way that the internet people, right, that send internets. I, my staff sent an internet out the other day, and I didn't get it. To, I mean, God almighty, really? Okay, um, the, the, what would happen then is I would have to pay the fee. So you, dear podcast recipient, would have either a slow download or a fast download, and I could pay Comcast to reach all the people on Comcast through their high-speed line, and there'd be more money there for, for Comcast to build more infrastructure because they would charge for this. This is obviously before the Internet's developed to the point now where high-speed is almost everywhere. And, and, and we have all this stuff happening that we were going to have the whole thing destroyed over uh, not happen. So that they would, the fear that they would do this. And, and the reality is I already pay for this. It's called bandwidth charges. I already pay a hosting provider a lot of money every month, mostly not for storage, but for transfer. This cost is already built in. These morons don't understand that. Now, they all got drummed up as a potential thing. So then the other side, and this is the liberals in government, not the liberals in society, the liberals in government, said, we need to make sure that doesn't happen. So they want to create a law to prevent a practice that has not occurred. Okay? And what they want to do is they're calling it hands off the Internet. The Internet means to remain a public utility, which means regulated far more than it is now. And what they want to do is pass a law that says companies can't do this and call it net neutrality to make it where they can't charge me to access you via the fast lane. Well, what they do right now, and this was the solution all along, is they say to you, do you want one megabit? Do you want six? Do you want 30? How fast do you want your connection to be? And they sell you a higher price service for a higher level of performance. And I likewise could sit on a little shitty shared server and my site will crash with a number of traffic and everything else. Or I can go beef up into something like a 100 terabyte server that I have. And even with that, I had a server that was costing me $350 a month to serve you with. And over time, and as the show grew in popularity and more and more of you are downloading it, You know, and we're looking at millions of downloads over a year of sizable files. The performance of that server got to be unreliable. You'd get to the side, it would load slow, it would hang. It wouldn't load, you hit reload, then it was there. It worked, but it didn't give you the quality of service that, that I wanted to give you. So the net neutrality, anti-net neutrality solution, I guess, would be that I could then have paid Comcast to deliver the service to you faster. But of course, Comcast wasn't where the problem was. The problem was my box, my processing power, and the bandwidth and the, 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 the quality of the connection out of my host, host website out to the general Internet. You're responsible for your own. So what I end up having to do, I now pay over $500 a month just for hosting so that you can then download the show quickly, that you can go to the website and it'll work, that you can go to the forum and it'll work. That's one of the costs of doing business when you get to this level of an audience. So the problem is self-correcting. The, per the person providing the content is paying more to transfer the content. So he's all worried. Huh, they're, gonna, they're already using FedEx. They're already, I mean, this is like a freaking idiot. And, and now they want to use this thing for free. It's not free. 
When you start getting into terabytes of transfer, it starts to get expensive. I mean, I wonder if this guy, if we could you know, bring him back to life and put him down and let him look at Amazon.com's bandwidth bill per month, he'd probably have a heart attack and end up back in the grave when he realized how much these companies pay for this. Is it less expensive to deliver a movie over Prime than to deliver a DVD just in shipping? Let's not talk about packaging and all that. Of course it is. That's the whole point. That's the market moving forward. So you'll probably see in coming years a new sort of net neutrality argument brought up. But this is really an old and dead and stale argument at this point. But that's what all the hoopla was about, that the, the tubes would fill up and the Internet wouldn't work anymore. And your staff would send you an Internet, send you an Internet, got that, right? And you wouldn't get it till the next day because all this other stuff was in the way. So because, you know, probably his incompetent tech staff, up there at the Capitol, earning our tax dollars, by the way, had his server configured wrong or something. He was basically blaming, you know, kids streaming music or people streaming videos. That's that's why his his internet was sent out by his staff and didn't get to him till the next day. He didn't even understand that if he was at the Capitol and they were at the Capitol and he got an internal network, it probably never went through the internet. It went through the intranet. But hey, you know what? You don't know. You don't know. But then you pass laws to regulate it. That's real. And really, the, the, the point is that there is no problem requiring government regulation of the Internet, but they're looking for one to sell you on. That was one attempt. And they may come back with another reason we need this net neutrality legislation, which is basically saying the government will step in and make sure nobody can jack with the Internet when nobody's jacking with the Internet. But that would set the tables... Now, think about this. If you passed this, well, who's going to do it? Well, you need a new department, the Department of Network Neutrality. So then you're going to hire a bunch of bureaucrats to oversee a problem that doesn't exist. Well, then they're going to start saying, oh, we got to do something. we got to catch somebody and prove we... So they're going to start looking for problems, and they're going to start creating regulations and codes and, uh, and policies to justify their existence which will lead to extreme interference with the Internet. That's what net neutrality was. It was just simply a, a government lie so that the government could take more power, as always. I got one more from Mark here, and this is a hard one to answer because I have to answer it honestly, and I, I don't really um, like the way that I'm going to have to answer it, but you, you have to answer things with the truth if you're a man of honor, and I am. Hi, Jack. Is there any advantage to becoming a U.S. citizen at this point? I'm from England. I moved to the U.S., and it's getting close to the time I could apply to be a citizen if I wanted to, but it seems the advantages of doing so might be outweighed. For example, if you say there are no political solutions at this point, then there's really not a lot of advantage to being able to vote. I don't think there's any advantage to being able to vote, dude. I don't think one vote's going to change anything, even if you believe in the solution. I think that the belief that if I can convince my brother to vote Republican or my father to vote Democrat, everything will be sunny and rosy, is delusional thinking. So I don't even think if there were political solutions, and by and large there's not, that that would be an advantage to becoming a U.S. citizen. Not in our current climate. Resident aliens are under some kind of scrutiny, but if the NSA is keeping an eye on everyone, there's really no great advantage to being a U.S. citizen. Agreed. Um, the Obamacare mandate applies to citizens, not resident aliens. I guess I'm not really worried about that, but with the precedent set, might staying a resident alien shield me from some future BS? Maybe. Um, the process involves giving the government a bunch of money and involves a bunch of inconvenient traveling. 
You've talked before about starving the machine, so I wondered if you thought I would be doing, I'd be better doing that in this case. Appreciate your two cents on this one. Thanks for all you do. So it's expensive to become a U.S. citizen. Now, I guess you can come here illegally and you can get all kinds of goodies, but if you come here through the front door, it's expensive and laborious and it takes a lot of effort to be a citizen. Now, there was a time in this nation's history I would have said, that's what it takes to be one of us. That's what it takes to, to join the club, so to speak. And a couple things have changed. One, me, and I've seen the lie that that always was. And two, the, the truth within that lie has been degraded to almost nothing. Let me tell you what becoming an American citizen would do for you, Mark. It would put greater oversight on your money and your funds, though your nation of England's not far off. But at least right now, if you wanted to, you could easily go set up a bank account in Switzerland or Australia or somewhere else. Were me, I can't do that because I'm an American citizen. The, the most noble citizen in the world, the most free man on planet Earth, can't even open a bank account in Perth, Australia, because the Australians do not want to deal with me because of my government. It would give you a passport that said United States citizen on it, which if you're somewhere in the third world might make you a bigger target than United Kingdom citizen on it. So you actually join the club of being someone who's, who's more loathed than you are already by many parts of the world. That's who Americans are today. I don't care whether you think it's justified or not. You are more likely to be shot in the head for being an American today before being a UK citizen. Now the truth is there's a lot of other countries that you would be better off having your passport from than UK, but ours is no better. So you would also become subject to greater United States income tax authorities um, and the inability to leave. You would lose the ability, if you're no longer a U.K. citizen, to travel freely throughout the European Union, if that's uh, important to you, unless you became a dual citizen. I don't know if that's what you would do. Um, but I don't see any advantage anymore. That's a sad statement. As an American, as an American who served in the military, is an American who believes in the ideals that our nation was founded on. That's tough to say. That's tough to admit. How the hell can you turn around and say, being a citizen of this country doesn't really matter anymore? There's no advantage to it. Well, please tell me what advantage I get. Pride? Pride? Is that what I get? Pride? I give up my freedoms and my essential liberties for pride? So I can say, look what I am. I'm an American. What do I get as an American... What, what advantages do I have as an American in the world today that I don't have as a citizen of the United Kingdom or a citizen of Jamaica or Costa Rica or Panama for that matter? And, and I know there's people out there that are very angry that I say this, but I, you answer the question. This is from a man who wrote a poem when he was in his early 20s that ended with this line, for to be called an American is the greatest honor I know. I wrote those words. Today I ask you what honor it brings to me to be called an American. We are the nation of the Cardassians. We are the no nation that has sold out our wealth. We are the nation that has bred almost an entire generation of children with no resiliency. We can't handle any sort of adversity at all. Thankfully, as those children grow up, they're finding the human nature within them and realizing they have to develop it for themselves. It's not their fault. We made them that way. 
We've gone from being the nation that created and built more things than any other nation under the sun. We're not that anymore. What, are, what is the United States number one in anymore? What, what are we first in anymore other than basketball, baseball, and football? Seriously, what are we number one at? We are the largest economy in the world, and it doesn't look like we will be by the year 2020. That'll pass to the Chinese. We're not number one in education. We're not number one in literacy. What are we number one in? Actually, it turns out, over at Lou Rockwell, I found an article of 20 things we are number one at. We're still number one at certain things. Just see if they make you proud. The United States has the highest incarceration, incarceration rate in the world and the largest total population of prisoners for the entire globe. So we don't just have more percentage of Americans in prison in the United States. We have more people in prison in the United States than China. China has 1.7 billion people. We have 300 million, and yet we have a larger total prison population than China. India also has a billion-plus people in, in, in their country, and we have more people in our prison than they do. So we're number one at prisoners. Um, according to NationMaster.com, the United States is the highest percentage of obese people in the world. So we're, we're now, the, 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 by percentage anyway, the fattest country in the world. The United States has the highest divorce rate on the globe by a wide margin. So our policies of making divorce profitable and making single parenthood profitable have resulted in the destruction of the family and the highest rate of divorce of any nation on planet Earth. Yay us. The United States is tied with the UK, sorry Mark, uh, for the most hours of television watched per person each week. So we watch more television than any other nation in the world. The, the, the United States has the highest rate of, illicit, of illegal drug use on the entire planet. So the nation with some of the most stringent laws on, on drug use, especially soft drugs like marijuana, has the highest use of them because the government can fix any problem. Yeah, right. There are more car thefts in the United States each year than anywhere else in the world by far. So we're number one for car thefts. There are more reported rapes in the United States each year than anywhere else in the world. So we have more rapes in this country. That's, that's great. There's more reported murders in the United States each year than anywhere else in the world. So we, we kill more people. Um, and we kill a lot of them without guns, by the way. So it's not like it's the gun problem. You know, you guys think that it is. Uh, there's more total crimes in the United States each year than anywhere else in the world. See? Crimes. Total crimes. We have, we're number one in crimes. Um, the United States has more police officers than anywhere else in the world. So even though we have more law enforcement, we have more crimes. See? That, that's great. You know, so we're number one at that. So you could join us, Mark, and you could be part of the country with the most police officers and the most criminals. It would be great. The United States spends more on health care as a percentage of GDP than any other nation on the face of the earth. So even though we don't have government-provided Nirvana health care, we spend more money on health care than any other nation in the world. The United States has the most people on pharmaceutical drugs than any other nation on the planet. We are on both illegal and legal medication, higher levels than any other nation on the world. The percentage of women taking antidepressants in America, higher than any other country in the world. We're number one for depressed women. I wonder why. We're number one for, you know, uh, un unwed mothers, single moms, and we're number one for divorce, so I guess that would make women depressed. I, I would think so. Um, Americans have more student loan debt than anywhere else in the world. So while we're not number one for education, we're number one for the most debt attached to education. More pornography is created in the United States than anywhere else on the entire globe. 
89% is made in the USA and only 11% is made in the rest of the world. So we actually produce 89% of the world's pornography. 89% of the world's pornography produced in America. So we're number one for porn. That, that, I guess that's good. Um, the United States has the largest trade deficit in the world every single year. Between December 2000 and December 2010, the United States ran a total trade deficit of $6.1 trillion with the rest of the world. The U.S. has had a negative trade balance every single year since 1976. We have the, we're number one for trade deficits. Yeah, that's good. The United States spends seven times more on the military than any other nation on the planet does. In fact, the U.S. military spending is greater than the single military spending of China, Russia, Japan, India, and the rest of NATO combined. Let me read that one to you again. We spend more money on our military than China plus Russia plus India and all of NATO added up together. We spend more on our military-industrial complex than all those other nations do because we have to protect ourselves from terrorists who live in caves. And we have to, we have to snoop on the Internet activity of 19-year-old college students because of terrorists who live in caves, and we're number one for military spending over multiple nations added up. The biggest militaries in the world added up don't add up to ours in spending. The United States has far more military, has far more foreign military bases than any other country does. So we're number one for putting our military bases in other nations. That might be part of our spending problem. Uh, so we're number one for imperialism is basically what that means. Um, the United States has the most complicated tax system in the entire world. Land of the free, home of the braid, home of the most complicated, hard to understand tax system on planet Earth. Okay. Uh, number 20. The U.S. has accumulated the biggest national debt that the world has ever seen. It's rapidly getting worse. Right now, the U.S. debt is expanding at $40,000 per second. I think this is an older article, and we might actually, it's from 2011. We might actually be expanding a little faster than that. Let's check the United States debt clock and see how much money we owe today, folks. Right now, we owe $17 trillion, $337 billion. 159 million, 667, 8, 9, 10, okay, you get it? 17.3 trillion dollars. We owe more money than exists. We're number one for debt. We're number one for porn. We're number one for failure to produce. We're number one for consumption. We're number one for consumption. That's what we're number one for. We consume. We consume more dope, legal and illegal. We have more women raped. We have more people in prison. We have more law enforcement. We have a larger prison system. We have more military. We have more spying on our own citizens than any other nation in the world. Even the nations run by bigger despots than the people that run this nation today. People with less appreciation for freedom and liberty. With, with more malice. With more willing to kill their own. There are nations with leaders more willing to kill you than your government is. Definitely not a problem. Does exist. They don't have the technology, the capability, and the money to execute on it. 
We are a perfect combination of malice and money coming together in the form of collusion between the United States government and corporations and a plutocracy. We are modern fascism revealed. The racist component of fascism that was brought to the extreme under Nazi Germany has been used to pull the wool over your eyes to the fact that not all fascism is based on that level of racism. That fascism is classically an economic system where government and industry work together to control the population and manipulate the population and act as a mediator between the classes of citizens, be it economic classes, racial classes, or other ways that the, 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 the class system divides a nation. And that those divisions could be advantageous to furthering the goals of the state and the goals of industry. That's, that's textbook fascism. Look it up. Fascism is not killing all the Jews. That is one racist component to one runaway fascist government. Now, what has changed in classic fascism, the government is supreme over industry. The government tells industry what to do with itself and controls the, the industry by doling out government contracts. You'd say, well, how is that different? Well, in a true fascist state, the government remains at a supremacy level over industry, where now what you have is the industry is supreme over the government. So this is what I call, this is what I personally call neo-fascism. Modern neo-fascism. Where, yes, the government's doling out the contract, but it's because the industry is telling the government, give me the contract and here's some money so you will. So the, 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 the industry's priming the pump at the top and making more come out at the bottom. And of course, if, if Halliburton can dump, you know, $30 million in contributions into some political campaigns this year, and net out, you know, a half a billion dollars in government work and get a return like that, where's the rest of the money coming from? It's coming from you, and it's come from your children and grandchildren in the form of debt. That's neo-fascism. We're number one for neo-fascism. We're number one for rape. We're number one for all of these horrible things. And we have, yes, industry and government to blame. But the biggest blame lies on the backs of us, the citizens who've gone to sleep at the switch. And I am done with political solutions. I am now working 100% on active solutions. I want to wake people up to the reality that they live in. And the only way we'll ever have a political solution is when we have, I don't know, 20 or 30 million of us awake. Maybe then... And we stop saying we don't want to hear your bullshit about the dichotomy anymore. We don't want you to fix our problems anymore. Go away. Leave us alone. Let's make this whole thing smaller and more what it was supposed to be in the first place. Until then, I got shit to do. I invite you to come along with me. I have food systems to plant. I have social systems to build in a voluntary manner where people choose to help each other. They're not forced to do so. I have people to inspire to create new means of the exchange of value and people to inspire to create new means of education and technology and systems and development. And that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing. I don't care anymore about the political problems. This, this whole line of thinking today came from that thing where I put the picture of the rearview mirror up with DC in the rearview mirror going, I'm hauling ass away from this thing. The It's closer than it looks, so i got to put the pedal down and get going. Because the question that came in was, well, 
um, the, the districts are drawn unfairly, so how can we change the districts to avoid gerrymandering? So the question is, how do we gerrymander the districts to avoid gerrymandering? That, that in of itself tells you there's no more pol political solution to any of this. It's all a game. And it, they depend on you thinking they're important. They depend on you thinking they're mattering. The only thing we need to focus on is every time they try to take something away, that's the only time you pay attention and you beat it back. It doesn't matter which side's stealing your liberty, Democrats or Republicans, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they're coming down on farmers or they're coming down on gun owners. When that happens, you just make a show of force to do the best you can within the system and you go back to doing your own shit. You don't support candidate A or candidate B because they are both going to screw you in the end. There is no one up there looking out for you. It does not exist. The machine will corrupt them even if they go there with the proper intentions. All this stuff you're seeing about people being great people that really care is theater designed for your control and amusement. Grab on to what you actually can do. Build solutions, be they tiny solutions in your backyard or national solutions with others who voluntarily want to build a solution with you. Stop asking permission. Figure out where the roadblocks are. Go around them. Go over them. Ignore them. Go where the roadblocks aren't. Adapt. Improvise. Overcome. Roll out solutions. Bitcoin. Bitcoin has done more to harm the Fed Then the end of Fed movement started by Ron Paul. You tell me it hasn't. You prove to me. What did the end of Fed movement do? It brought awareness? That's about it. What did it do? Anything. Anything to actually control what the Fed can do. Or to give anybody a solution other than we should get rid of it, we should audit it, we should abolish it, hold silver and exchange silver with each other. Bitcoin has processed probably billions of dollars of transactions outside of the influence and control of the Federal Reserve, because somebody just did it. I'm not saying it's the Holy Grail. I'm not saying it's going to fix everything. I'm not saying it'll be here in five years. I don't know. But I know right now it's done more than any political solution, and it's a non-political solution. Permaculture has fed millions of people around the world. It is an anti-political solution in the words of its founder. It's converting backyards in food deserts, in the food production systems every single day because it's something that people can just do. And those are just two examples. Somebody got an idea about changing the way we do education and the Khan Academy was born. And people are getting a better education from someone they don't know about complex subjects today from anywhere in the world than they can get in a public institution Because somebody just did it and didn't worry about politics. They just did it. We are on the cusp of a shift in society where old ways are dying. They're dying rapidly. It looks slow, but it's because we're looking through the lens of now versus the lens of historical context. If you look at the accelerated rate of change in thinking, in acting, in being, in doing today versus the way it looked from, let's say, 1950 to 2000. We're accelerating into mock speed right now. The landscape that you know 
will be dramatically different over the next 10 years. And it's not just the economy will collapse, the zombies will rise and eat your beans. No. But people are going to get hurt in this shift. The less prepared you are, not just with stuff, just mentally, the very awareness that it's coming will allow you to adapt quicker and capitalize more than the people around you. The older you are, the more you will cling to the, the paradigm that is shifting under your feet. Don't cling to an old paradigm that is dying. Education, radical transformation coming. Energy, radical transformation coming. Radical transformation in energies. Science, radical transformations. There will be more people, like I saw this weekend, standing in grocery stores, looking at meat and going, I can't afford these prices. We, my, Dorothy and I saw that yesterday at a grocery store. Makes you feel bad. That problem is not going to be solved with subsidies. It's not going to be solved with one more CAFO. It's going to be solved by people starting to understand that they can take some control over that. And that more and more people take control, we can actually build something that's better. Bitcoin, I don't want you to get me wrong. I don't want you to think that I think it's the, the, the holy grail solution to our problem. Or even the platform that's built on with all the other variants. I don't know what's next. All I know is that one person or one small group of people decided to do something instead of doing it for their own personal well-being, just did it because it seemed like the best thing they could do to deal with the situation and something amazing came out of it. And that now that people are aware of that, it's quite likely that someone else will take another shot at it. And they'll do it half-assed and mess it up. And then somebody else will do it and get it kind of right. And somebody else will do it and hit a home run. MySpace will be around forever. It's the most dominant. Oh, Facebook, look at that. Wow. And those were corporate-controlled interests. These new things are decentralized interests. Everybody who wants to freely contribute as they choose and let the community judge the value of either using or not using what was contributed, including some using it and some not. So that ideas develop faster. But buddy, when that new realm hits the old world, it's going to be a collision like when Earth met Orpheus. Which was how we ended up with a giant moon. If you were a thousand miles away, that collision looked slow. If you were standing right here, it would have been vaporized. Unlike that collision though, this one... We can see it coming, and we can do something about it. It will be cataclysmic, but it will be extensively, extensively full of opportunities for those that can adapt and adjust. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about modern survivalism. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess.
Revolution is you. 